Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today I'll chat with two individuals who are committed to seeing a change in the criminal justice system when it comes to wrongful convictions. Dr. Matthew Barry Johnson is a distinguished professor and author. His book about wrongful convictions continues to open eyes to bias and racism. So when we, when we, when we read a newspaper that such and such suspect was apprehended and confessed, we think, oh, they caught him and he confessed. We don't know that he was in there with them eight hours and what they went through during those eight hours. The absence of that evidence is a suppression of evidence. That evidence is, a, is essential for people to get a fair trial. And retired trial lawyer Andrew Manns Jr. gives us his thoughts on how there needs to be a change in the system. They're unwilling to admit their mistakes because of pride, ego, and arrogance. We'll have much more on the issue of wrongful convictions coming up on the WBGO Journal. While it's Black History Month, the conversation we're about to have today could be held any day of the year. And joining me on the WBGO Journal are two individuals who have deep interest in changing not only the way we look at our criminal justice system, but the damage that is done when someone is convicted of a crime they did not commit. Dr. Matthew Barry Johnson is a distinguished professor and author. His book, Wrongful Conviction and Sexual Assault, Rape, Acquaintance Rape, and Intrafamilial Child Sexual Assault was published by Oxford University Press in 2021. This work reveals sexual assault is the most common offense associated with wrongful convictions in the U.S. Professor Johnson, great to have you on the show. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, thanks for the invitation. We're also excited to have Andrew D. Manns Jr. here with us, a retired trial lawyer, child advocate, social entrepreneur, creative change agent, film producer, career coach, motivational teacher, and mentor. Your business card doesn't have enough room for that, Andrew. But so I'm not sure what always that you'll put, but right now, you're also the marketing consultant to Worldwide Marketing, an AI-driven all-in-one business marketing system platform for high-end businesses and entrepreneurs. Andrew has also held numerous leadership positions, such as executive board member and trainer for the New Jersey Prison Fellowship and the New Jersey Justice Fellowship Task Force, where he led teams of volunteers into New Jersey prisons to teach inmates life skills to improve their chances of living in the outside world. Andrew, great to see you again. It's great to see he, to see you also, Doug. And I think it's important that the audience know that we're being interviewed by WBGO's news director, who is an award-winning journalist and well-recognized within the NPR network and Newark and and the metropolitan area. My my, I salute you, sir, because you are a phenomenal uh, uh, broadcaster and you're not afraid to tackle the tough issues. I appreciate that. And uh, now that you are my agent, we'll talk about your fees coming up after this interview. <laughs> So, Dr. Johnson, in Chapter 3 of your book titled Race and Rape Prosecution in the U.S., that's the, in U.S. history, that's the title of the chapter, you present the current and historical role of race bias in the prosecution of sexual assault. So, first of all, before we get into that chapter, I, I wanted to go back. What sparked or prompted you to get involved with this subject matter in the first place? Well, um, I'm a psychologist by training. I've been concerned about the uh, criminal justice system uh, throughout my adult life, and the fact that um, that our criminal justice system not only uh, makes errors from time to time, but that it appears as though there's some systematic 
uh, problems with the, with the criminal justice system. So I was trained as a psychologist, and I sought a career as a uh, forensic psychologist, uh, ass uh, assisting attorneys in preparing cases and things of that sort. And I had some, that's some of my early uh, contact with uh, Andrew Manns as an attorney was in that context. I uh, uh, focused on interrogation and confession earlier in my career because it seemed to me that that was an area where um, people were being questioned by police and they were being persuaded, coerced, manipulated, and somehow or another people were, were police were getting confessions from people that, that were innocent. And so I was I was uh, fascinated by that, and I began set out to try to understand that better, so I could help and contribute um, in uh, criminal defense as as an expert. Uh, later in my career, I learned that there were wrongful convictions that did not stem from people making false confessions, but actually there were wrongful convictions that stemmed from witness misidentifications, where eyewitnesses stated a particular person was a perpetrator. And in fact, they were they were incorrect. And that really expanded my vision in terms of uh, this area of research. Actually, some of that came from some unique experiences I had in, here in New Jersey re regarding um, our efforts to abolish the New Jersey uh, death penalty, which uh, we which we did back in 2007. So maybe I'll talk about that. But anyway, so I had these two different routes that I saw that were leading people to be wrongfully convicted, uh, confessions and then also misidentifications. In one specific case, in Chapter Three, you start right off with it with a case that if you, you you read the book, you just go, "Wow, how could this happen?" It's a, it's the case of in 1979, Nate Walker fled the New Jersey authorities and assumed residence under an alias in California. He had been misidentified four months after the knife point rape by an Elizabeth, New Jersey, white woman who was attacked in Newark in 1974. To make a long story short, there were all kinds of problems with this case, physical evidence, as well as things that you just can't understand why they would happen. Eventually, he would be exonerated, but it would be 11 years later. When we, when we read about these or we see these type of cases or hear about them, we just wonder how, how does it happen, but you know how it happens, don't you? Well, yes, I have a a, a understanding and an intimate knowledge of how it happens. Fortunately, I met and worked with um, Nate Walker after he was exonerated. He actually was part of our coalition when we were advocating to abolish the death penalty in New Jersey. But his case is instructive and valuable. Um, Nate Walker was um, misidentified by uh, a, a woman who had been sexually assaulted and raped uh, in, in the Newark area. And um, he was uh, a victim of um, uh, inadequate defense representation and this misidentification. And in 1979, we didn't know as much about misidentification as we know now. But um, one of the factors, one of the bigger factors in misidentification is the fact that if witnesses are brought in to do an identification, be it uh, with photographs or a live lineup, identifications. They're brought in to do an identification, and the actual perpetrator is not in that lineup or is not in that photo spread, but rather there are five or six other people who have the same general characteristics in terms of height, weight, ethnicity, uh, uh, hair, facial hair. Everyone else has those characteristics. The actual person is not there. 
there's a high likelihood that that witness will pick someone else. And that is what occurred in, in, in his case, that um, it was a, we call it in terms of, in the resource community, a culprit absent lineup. The actual person's on the lineup. You can imagine someone that endured a horrible crime and has been traumatized and is trying to work with law enforcement to bring the perpetrator to justice. When they get that call to come down to the precinct, you know, we want you to take a look at some suspects we have. A victim is going to believe what? That they have apprehended the person. They need me to point him out so we can proceed with this uh, prosecution and, and, and the person can be punished. And if they come to that uh, uh, lineup, photo spread or live lineup, and they're not certain, and they express that they're not certain, they feel as though they have um, they have disrupted. They have they, they're interfering with the with the investigation. So it's difficult for them to come and say, "I don't see him." And that coupled with the fact that they were presented with people who fit the same general description. Oftentimes, errors occur. We we know from uh, research, both in terms of uh, uh, field research, like actual cases in the field, as well as uh, simulations that are run in uh, academic settings in terms of eyewitness memory, that about 25, upwards between 25 up to up to 30 percent of eyewitness misidentifications are incorrect. So a large proportion of them are incorrect, and, and that's that's pretty well established. And we know, particularly if there's a culprit absent. Uh, uh, lineup that increases the likelihood. And once that person is chosen, not unless they have very, very effective defense representation or an overwhelming, you know, like in Nate Walker's case, he actually had an alibi as to where he was at the time of the offense. And it wasn't just a personal alibi. It wasn't just his his wife or his mom or his brother said, oh, he was with me. He was at work and there was a time clock to verify his alibi. So this was very, very strong um, uh, evidence. But when it goes up against someone who's been victimized in a, in a, in a, in a very uh, horrible crime, and that person says, that points in, in the courtroom and says, that's the man that attacked me, jurors are going to go with the, with the victim's uh, statement. Andrew, through those wonderful documentaries that we seem to be getting more and more ever since the pandemic, more people are watching about specific cases and movies and individual cases over the past few years. Many of us have seen the results of the Innocence Project, a nonprofit organization committed to exonerating individuals who have been wrongly convicted through the use of DNA testing and working to reform the criminal justice system. In your opinion, are we making any dent in reducing the amount of wrongful convictions? My my comments are, are my own. I am no longer associated with my former law firm. And so the answer to your question is no. I, I spent 35 years in, in the industry. And when I was fighting for clients in a particular area and pointed to current and up-to-date research, the courts said, we're not accepting it because we don't have a policy that allows us to do it. There is no mindset to say how we can do things better. There's no responsibility, in my opinion, to do that. And I'm just so grateful for the groundbreaking work that Dr. Johnson has done in pulling off the covers of the inadequacies of the investigative tools that are used by police 
and graciously accepted by the judicial system without question. It's, and I just encourage people to spend time and go to the courts, watch a trial, sit through and listen to on Fridays when they do sentencing, how they do it and how they completely ignore the humanity of the people there. But getting back to Dr. Johnson's uh, groundbreaking research, I had to strap myself into my chair with my with my uh, seatbelt because his his content and his findings was so explosive. But not only does his book talk about the problems, he offers practical and very real solutions. And so the question becomes, is the judiciary reading it? Are the prosecutors reading it? Are law enforcement reading it? Are public defenders reading it to make the system better? So that's my question. When you were working with uh, inmates through your various positions, did the subject of wrongful convictions come up a lot with the people that you were working with? All, all the time. Uh, but with respect to the sexual assault uh, arena, that's the most difficult one um, because many of the clients, their alibis are minimized and not even considered, not even looked into. I can't tell you the I can't tell you the number of cases that clients were indicted, go into trial, but a thorough investigation showed that my client wasn't even there. There was documentation to that. So that goes to the level or lack of pre-investigative work done so that people aren't aren't having their lives destroyed being under the gun of investigation and facing a trial. Professor Johnson currently serves on the editorial boards of the Journal of Ethnicity and Criminal Justice and the Wrongful Conviction Law Review. He's also on the advisory board of Floridians for alternatives to the death penalty. His publications and testimony have cited favorably in the New Jersey Supreme Court decisions. Dr. Johnson, taking all these cases uh, into, into mind, where does race bias begin? Police, prosecutors, judges, juries, all of them. Race bias exists in the United States. I mean, race bias began when Africans were uh, brought here against their will, our, our ancestors. So race bias has a lengthy history in the U.S. and in, in the United States, and it's recognized in veiled form in the U.S. Constitution when they said that people who were not um, otherwise citizens were three-fifths, would be counted as three-fifths of a person. So race bias is part of the United States history. Um, there's no question about that. Um, now, in terms of my historical uh, uh, focus in the book, um, I want to talk about the problem of wrongful conviction today and the fact that um, among those who have been exonerated, African-Americans are highly disproportionately represented. Um, and I can talk about that in, in, a, in uh, some more. Um, but I also knew that there was a, uh, a history of this, and I wanted to get a great understanding of the history of this. And so I, I looked at the earlier legal framework. Um, and as you uh, probably can imagine, that during the era of uh, enslavement, when African people were enslaved in the United States, that there were statutorily separate um, laws and penalties for sexual assault and rape based upon the racial or ethnic grouping of the defendant and that of the victim. So um, where 
black men were charged or alleged, allegedly had committed sexual assaults against whites, it stated on the record that there would be a more severe punishment. In fact, during the period of enslavement, um, um, execution and castration were common penalties for sexual assaults committed by blacks. When I say blacks, black people or people who were during that period designated as mulattoes and where the uh, victims were white. And in fact, um, as you probably know, many people know that um, white women, uh, excuse me, black women that were held um, in bondage in slavery, that they had no protection against sexual assaults from um, their owners or other, other white men. So that was the framework um, prior to, from the uh, establishment of the United States up until the time of the Civil War. And just briefly after the Civil War, the race uh, considerations were supposed to be eliminated in our legal code through the uh, 14th Amendment, which was going to guarantee equal protection of law. But what happened was that the uh, practice of more severe sentencing of Black males charged with offenses against whites continued. And so we said, well, how did it continue if, in fact, the race was race considerations were taken out of the law? Well, one way it, con it continued was that in several states, um, there was the crime of aggravated rape, and it was a crime of simple rape. And aggravated rape was a rape that offended the morals of the entire community. So that meant a rape that was committed by a black man against a white woman, where if a white man was charged with rape against a white woman or against a black woman, that was simple rape. And the penalty was lesser for simple rape than it was for aggravated rape. Another way it was done in, in, um, in other states was that they said that um, the penalty would be determined by the jury alone. So um, the uh, statute didn't prescribe a particular penalty based upon the race ethnicity, but it was left up to the jury. Now we know that in the former Confederate states of the South, that routinely black people were eliminated from serving as jurors and they sat and they were judged by all white juries. And as a result, those all white juries, when they were um, sentencing a black man who was charged with rape of a white woman would sentence him and her to death. And so, excuse me, it's him, him to death, I'm sorry. So this is how systematically, even though race was supposedly taken out of the legal processing, it remained there. And that, and that characterized the, uh, Jim, the Jim Crow era up until around 1963 or 64 and what, what I describe in my book as the post-civil rights era. But we still have this problem with um, over-representation of, uh, of black men charged with rape particularly when the victims are white. And let me let me give a couple of illustrations because I talked earlier about um, uh, false confessions. And then we also talked about Nate Walker who was misidentified. You know, so these are two different common routes to wrongful conviction and sexual assault. With the uh, false confessions, uh, the, the, the notorious Central Park Five case, virtually everybody knows about that. Uh, white woman who was an investment banker was brutalized and almost killed in Central Park in 1989. And the police uh, arrested and questioned uh, many uh, youths and they were able to coerce confessions from five of them. What many people don't know is that it was only 36 hours after they found the woman's body. Well, I shouldn't say her body because she was still alive after they, after they recovered her. Then within 36 hours, they had the confessions from these five youths. And at that point, everything that happened after that point was superfluous because they had the confessions, 
They were going to get indicted. They were going to be convicted. Their, all of their appeals were going to be denied. The, the judicial system, the appellate courts do not. They ratify what is done in the earlier courts. They do not adequately investigate it. And it was only because the actual perpetrator came forward and admitted that he acted alone. He was the only person who was DNA matched to the crime. And it was only because of that compelling evidence that they were eventually exonerated. So exoneration did not come from anybody in the criminal justice system or the legal system or the appellate system. It came from this man who was a repeat sex offender, a serial sex offender, who while in prison went through a transformation and started to own up to his prior crimes. So that was a case that was a false confession case. I want to tell you about another case that's easily accessible because there's actually a documentary on, on about it now on Netflix. And the title is Making Memory. And that title is instructive because it tells us that we're going to see how false memories are created and then they're used or misused in the legal system to convict someone. This is a case from uh, Richmond, Virginia. The young man's name was Thomas Hainsworth. He was only 18 years old. Um, there were a series of uh, sexual attacks on white women in this particular area in Richmond, Virginia. One day, Thomas Hainsworth is, is going to the store to pick up something for his mom. And I'm, I mean, this, this is literally, I'm not, you know, he's embellishing anything. He's going to the store to pick up something for his mom. One of the women who had been sexually assaulted sees him on the street and believes that he's the person that had attacked her. She goes and reports it to the police. The police bring Thomas Hainsworth in and they question him. I don't remember what, whether he did or didn't have an alibi. I don't remember the element, but they bring him in and they question him. And then they subject him to a, 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 a um, uh, lineup, lineup. One of the women who was, there, there, were, there were actually uh, at least five women that had been attacked within a short period of time in this section. One of the women who came to the um, to lineup, her name was um, Janet Burke. And I'm not divulging names, this is all in the documentary. So her name was Janet Burke. And um, she uh, goes to the uh, lineup and she identifies Thomas Hainsworth as the person that attacked her. So this is the first identification. So once she's identified him, then they show him, put him in lineup with these other women. What I believe happened is that they tell these other women that somebody has already been identified. So they're able to get five other women who also say that he's the one that attacked him. And he goes to prison. He's in prison and he's reading the paper. And you know, right after he goes to prison, there continue to be sexual assaults on white women in this area of, of, of Richmond that are committed by a black assailant. He actually figures out who committed the crime. And he begins to write the newspapers, his lawyers, and say, you know, this guy is still out there committing the crimes that I'm in prison for. He not only, not only that, he tells them what the guy's name is. He, he, he figured it out. I mention that case only because it illustrates the misidentification. And not only one person, five people have identified it, you know, I mean, most of us, if we were on the jury and they bring in five witnesses, most of us are going to convict the person. And it's not until we understand today how they get five people to make the same error 
that we have this type of awareness and and and, and direction in terms of what types of reforms need to be made. But I encourage people to take a look at that as it says it's available on, on Netflix. So Andrew, when you hear as as a retired trial lawyer, you hear about these cases. I, I want to know first of all. I just want to get the the stirring moment for for you, Andrew. How you feel after you hear about all this? Th- thank you, thank you for the question, Doug. And and what stirs for me is that when law enforcement uses techniques that creates false evidence and flawed evidence that results in wrongful convictions, that's one thing. The other subtle and more significant piece is that the actual perpetrator is still out there and still committing crimes. That, 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 that's what hurts me the most because when the incorrect information or investigation is 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 done that puts another innocent person another woman in jeopardy because law enforcement said well we're making a case against this person this is our guy and they haven't and they haven't done the the correct uh work and when you have in the in the story that Dr. Johnson talks about when the offender is in jail and figures it out. That's incredible. That that that's that's such a shame on law enforcement and, in my opinion, the judiciary. And and the other part of the crime is that he, they they're unwilling to admit their mistakes because of pride, ego, and arrogance and stubbornness. And this man who is innocent from day one remains in jail another additional year. One of the things that Dr. Uh, Johnson pointed out in his book, I believe, is that since 1989, with the advent of DNA testing, more than 3,000 offenders, uh, ex-offenders have been exonerated because of wrongful convictions. And that translates, Doug, to over 31,000 years of life deprived from these men. Now, mm-hmm. that is a horrible crime. And, and unfortunately, it, again, in my opinion, the laws, the criminal laws, are not designed for justice. They're designed to control and maintain the status quo. And one of the issues that, that Dr. Johnson so eloquently points out in his book is that the laws historically have been used to subjugate uh, black men and uh, black social movements for change. That's real powerful. That's the dynamic, that's the groundbreaking piece in Dr. Johnson's book, in my opinion. We only have a couple of minutes left. So Dr. Johnson, I want you to, if you can, uh, in a short period of time, talk about some of the solutions that Andrew had mentioned that, that are in your book, things that we can work on. Well, um, yeah, there's several things. Um, first, I want to say with regard to uh, interrogation and false confession that um, the uh, central reform that's needed uh, throughout the country and that has actually has been adopted in New Jersey. It has not been adopted in New York, and we're working with other advocates to bring, to bring about that reform in New York. But that um, whenever... Uh, Suspects are brought in for questioning. Um, 
at the from the very moment that they are in custody and held and begin to be questioned, there needs to be a re recording of exactly everything that's said to them. As a result, you can imagine, um, I mentioned a few moments ago about the Central Park Five case. If we had a record of everything that was said to each of those young men from the moment that they went into custody, then we would understand how they got Corey Wise and um, uh, Kevin Richardson to go on video and make these admissions. Um, without that record, um, we see the video and the video seemed to be very convincing. But when you have that record and you see how they were induced, things they were promised, threats that they endured, how they may have been coerced through uh, different penalties that they would be exposed to or things that might happen to people's family and things of that sort. These are all common things that occur. Um, then we can we understand you know what happens. So when we, when we when we read in the newspaper that such and such suspect was apprehended and confessed, we think, oh, they caught him and he confessed. We don't know that he was in there with them eight hours and what they went through during those eight hours. The absence of that evidence is a suppression of evidence. That evidence is, a, is essential for people to get a fair trial. So that that is the uh, the first and central um, uh, reform in terms of interrogation and confession. Other things that are important um, is that police should be prohibited from lying and deceiving suspects when they're questioning them. They should not. They cannot tell the suspect, "Well, your buddy already confessed and said you did it, so he's cooperating with us. Are you going to cooperate us, or are you going to, or are you just going to go down?" So, and, and, and the buddy never said anything, but that isn't a lie. It's a deception. And not only is it a deception, it's not, it's a systematic deception because it's part of the training in, in interrogation that police received in the United States. And it's not done that way in all countries. Other countries, the police are prohibited from lying during investigation. So that's another important protection and reform that needs, needs to occur. Professor and author Dr. Matthew Barry Johnson and retired trial lawyer Andrew Manns Jr. You can see the entire conversation on the WBGO Facebook page. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz station, WBGO and WBGO.org.